to be you. It had to be you. I wandered around and finally found the somebody who could make me be true, could make me be blue, or even be glad just to be sad, thinking of you. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, July 5th, 2020. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at foulspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. You all survived uh, the great uh, fireworks apocalypse of last night? It was yeah. an apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> it's seemingly on social media. Lots of people. It it was so crazy that somebody said Kanye is running for president. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, what's so sad is that every year you read about somebody who uh, blew his fingers off, you know, with, mm. with firecrackers and all that. I hope that didn't happen yesterday anywhere. But, uh, yeah, I stay in on the 4th of July. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, there are four days of the year I hate. Uh, the 4th of July, because uh, you never know what's going to happen with people with firecrackers. Uh, St. Patrick's Day, where everybody has license to get drunk. April Fool's Day, where people think it's funny to tell you things that drive you crazy, and then you find <laughs> out they're not true. And Halloween, where people um, can do mischief. Uh, so those are my four least favorite days of the year. What so, about the uh, <laughs> the Santa pub crawl? The Santa oh, right. Con, or is it? Santa and then, Con, yeah. And April Fool's is the worst online. Yeah, so. it really is. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, well, we have a long time to get to it. So at least that. Well, uh, July Fourth is a good day to stay in because um, we all get a chance to pull out our William Daniels film of 1776. Michael, you watched it yesterday, didn't you? Uh, yes, but I I've seen the movie. God knows how many times, uh, and I love it. In fact, I own it in two versions. You know, I don't know if you're where there's at least two versions. There's one called the sure. director's cut, and I forget right. what the other one is called. And uh, one of them has all the verses of Piddle Twiddle and Resolve. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably the one you you'd like to have. I think both versions now have cool, considerate men. Uh, anyway. Uh, I did watch a little of the movie yesterday, but I also watched a video of the production that I saw done just about a year ago, exactly a year ago, on Staten Island by Ghostlight Productions. Uh, and I, I remember I spoke about it at the time. It uh, had some really, really wonderful performances in the leads and several of the supporting roles. Jack Dabdub. Ah, uh, son, son yeah. of the uh, Broadway performer of the same name was Adams. Uh, my high school friend, Charles Sullivan, who's uh, one of the founders of the company was Franklin. Uh, Craig Kwasnicki, another friend of mine was Jefferson. John Griffin, who I've also, uh, not really a close friend, but I've known for about 40 years, was Rutledge and did a superb job with that very, very, very challenging song, Molasses to Rum. And then I know I, I mentioned this at the time, but I have to say again, for The Courier, they found a 14-year-old boy uh, who actually turned uh, 15 during the production. And his name was Jack West. And he did such a beautiful job with Mama Look Sharp that even watching the video yesterday, I literally had tears in my eyes. Mm. Um, Regardless of how well I know the song, how many times I've heard the song, how many times I've seen the show and the movie. uh, I mean, first of all, the the song is, is so so moving and so beautifully set up by the book writer Peter Stone and the the composer lyricist Sherman Edwards. Um, it's right after Cool Considerate Men, and we you know we we see these uh, these 
<laughs> what would later be known as right-wing uh, conservatives uh, just extolling their lifestyle, and uh, which includes, you know, sending people off to war, uh, even though they themselves would never go to war. And it also includes slavery, more on that later. But um, so they, you know, this huge right wing anthem that they all sing that comes to a huge climax. And then, and then the courier comes on and he and the two other fellows are just sitting there in the empty Congress chamber. And uh, this boy uh, has already seen action and is talking about, um, you know, a friend of his who died in battle. And it's, it's absolutely, absolutely heartbreaking. You know, um, it's funny that you mentioned right wing because um, they do sing to the right, ever to the right, never to the left, ever to the right. But here's the thing. Um, (laughs) One of my readers once uh, taught me that um, that term wasn't in um, existence then. Right and left came in the French Revolution, that um, that's where that Mm. expression came from. So uh, it's (laughs) there's a a line in the show. Your clock is fast, Mr. Adams. Well, um, the clock was fast there, too, Mr. Edwards. (laughs) So um, um, I planned yesterday to put it on TCM. Yes, I own it. But I mean, there it was, you know, so I I, um, plan to put it on TCM while I did my taxes. And 10 minutes into it, I had to sit down and just watch it. Um, And this, by the way, I do keep statistics of how many times I see movies. This was the 26th time since the first run in 1972 when I was there the first day um, that it was. And, you know, I mean, the movie doesn't work nearly as well as the stage show because what you need when you're watching the stage show is for you to look at that date, that calendar, and look at the tote board telling you how many are uh, for and how many are against and how many are abstaining and um, and how close it is. It's amazing that it was of June 28th, and we know that's only six days away, that it's really six um, six and six and one. I mean, it just seems impossible that it's going to happen. But what's really wonderful about 1776 is that it's so fair to Dickinson, the guy who was against American independence. Mm. Because I'm telling you, with a lesser writer and director, they would have made him fat and lisping and silly and stupid. But that's not what happens here at all. What happens that's so miraculous is that he comes up with very good reasons why we should stay with England. Oh, sure. We have no money. We have no friends. We have no army. And you think we're going to win? And you know, he's right. Um, Oh, Mr. Adams, is this all England means to you? Um, We're going to trade you in for... Hastings and Magna Carta and all that business. And he's right. He's right. I mean, of course, the audience comes in wanting American independence, but nevertheless, he's right. And that's what makes it so impressive that it's a fair fight. I recommend to anybody writing a play, make sure that um, you have your villain come up with good reasons for being a villain. And again, villain is too strong a word here, and that's why it's wonderful at the end of the show, after Dickinson is defeated, that uh, John Adams says, uh, I give ye John Dickinson, gives Mm. him a tribute there, because the guy was simply doing what he felt was right. Right. And uh, and that's really important uh, to acknowledge that. So it's such a smart show because after they sign the declaration, in comes the news that things are just worse than ever. And there they are, that they've already committed themselves to doing this. And in comes the courier with the Washington dispatch that everything is just beyond terrible. And that's very smart too. Um, also, what's really wonderful, I you know, here I am saying about Dickinson, uh, being uh, treated very, very well by Peter Stone in the greatest book in the history of musical theater. A lot of people go for Gypsy, but Gypsy was based on a book. And in fact, if you read the Gypsy book, um, you even see that it's structured as Act One, Act Two. I mean, and the end of Act One is indeed um, Rose at the Station, where June is not there anymore. So Peter Stone had to do it from congressional records and all that. And I, I, one has to wonder hmm. if it would have turned out so well if indeed he didn't say, to Sherman Edwards, you know, this has to be like 12 angry men. It has to be that we start off um, impossibly and then little by little by little by little um, win one man over at a time. And if there were no 12 angry men, I often wonder what would have happened if that uh, something similar would have occurred to Peter Stone without that spurring him to, uh, to think about that. It's the oddest score of any, I think, in Broadway history. And I know that's hyperbolic, but when you look at it, I mean, I, one of the things that was very famous, especially 
Uh, well, I mean, this is 1969 we're talking about. But up until that time, there were many conventional, and I mean that in not a bad way, but conventional songs that were A-A-B-A. Um, for those uh, listeners who don't know what I mean, the first, second, and fourth section of the songs are identical musically, and the third section is different. Um, so um, in in as time goes by, you must remember this, you know, it's still the same old story. So you, you have the, but moonlight and love songs, you know, that's different. <laughs> so that's the B section. All right. There is not one song in 1776 that say ABA, not one, not one, not mm-hmm. one. It's just amazing. Um, that's such a, a, a maverick score. Yes. Um, his accents and rhyming, terrible many times terrible um but the music is really quite right for the characters and for that matter the orchestrations by eddie sauter uh, who was a great orchestrator just great did the apple tree too which was wonderful henry sweet henry which really got the, ju- the juice out of that score which isn't so hot he was a great great orchestrator and he certainly did 1776 proud and was really wonderful i mean uh, (laughs) this show came out of nowhere david merrick did promises promises that year and he must have assumed i've got the tony in the bag (laughs) i mean this is i mean look and this show opened the last day before nominations uh it was the final day it was the cutoff day and david merrick must have been so confident especially because in new haven in washington this show was dying um nobody thought it was going to amount to anything at all and then Howard DeSilva played Ben Franklin, had a heart attack. I mean, mm-hmm. um, at one point he quit because his song was taken away from him. I mean, it was just chaotic. And it was so interesting that this show, which had so many odds against it, just as the United States did, wound up triumphing just as the United States did. So the metaphor is really there as well. But anyway, David Merrick was denied. And, you know, I, I, I tell you, on Mass Avenue in Boston, there used to be the Theater Company of Boston, and I remember going to see a show there. I don't remember what the show was, but what I remember was going next door and seeing the New York papers, which weren't very much in evidence in Boston. You couldn't find them everywhere, but there were the Times, the News, and the Post, and I opened them up to read the reviews of 1776, and of course, I chose the tabloids first because it's easier to get into those, Um, and uh, because, you know, you're waiting for the guy who runs the store to say, this is in a library, you know, I mean, so, but anyway, so I quickly, and I was amazed that the news was really good. And I was amazed that the post was really good. But I mean, the times is the one that really, really counted in those days. And uh, well, I had to open it up and there was Clive Barnes review, which was just as wonderful as the other ones. So I was amazed that this show, I had heard so many terrible things. I had friends who had seen it in New Haven, thought it was just God awful. I had friends who had seen it in Washington, thought it was God awful, but it sure wasn't God awful when I saw it. And to this day, to this day, more than 50 years later, I still say that William Daniels' performance in that show is the greatest I've ever seen a man given a musical. Hmm. So uh, I was, uh, when we were just starting to talk about 1776, I said, oh, I'll I'll throw a link to uh, the movie, the DVD, in the show notes uh, so that people can easily get to it. And it's $70 used on Um, Amazon. (laughs) Well, you know, I I really urge people to go to eBay for things like this. It's amazing how so many times you can get these things for cents. Um, You know, the people just don't bid. People aren't paying attention. It can work the other way, too. Uh, Bruce Echo often talks about the fact that uh, he had a, a, a soundtrack that he tried to sell for $25 pre-internet and because two people wanted they wound up selling it for 525 dollars so that can happen too but it's amazing how many times you can get things on ebay for for next to nothing so as a result i really urge people to try very very hard to do that and for books i think abe books is really good abe books one word dot com james i'm sorry what is 70 dollars uh, I'm looking on uh, 1776, the director's cut on uh, the DVD on Amazon is $70.66. Oh, gosh, I guess I, I guess that means it's out of print. Uh, and uh, the director's yeah. cut may mean something very different, too. And, you know, here's an irony. You probably have heard that when the show went to the White House, um, Nixon uh, mm. didn't want to hear cool conservative men, um, considerate men. And um, so there was a big thing about that. Well, yesterday, I don't know if anybody else had this experience, but during that number, suddenly my TV said no signal. 
And it, I thought, <laughs> well, is, is the government again suppressing this? Number? Oh, my. God. It really it really did happen. I mean, oh, I, I shut off the TV and put it back on. And there it was. I missed the number, which looks very odd in the film, I have to admit. Sometimes I think it was dropped because it looks so odd. But um, but nevertheless, it was just an irony. And by the way, if anybody had this experience yesterday while watching TCM, I'd love to hear from you. To have you say, yes, that happened in my cable system, too. So um, but uh, Spectrum, which is my carrier, uh, let me down during that number yesterday. And again, this this video, uh, both the the original video and the um, director's cut with, as Michael said, the extra piddle twiddle um lives in this apartment it was just so much easier to, you know to turn channel 82 and leave it at that mm. so <laughs> um so i uh flipped over to a books and uh what do we think is trending at the top of a books these days something involving hamilton ron chernow's book alexander yeah. hamilton yeah uh which is they've got many different uh uh, versions of it, soft cover, hard cover, first edition, signed copies, wow. signed yeah. by Alexander Hamilton. Really amazing. Kidding. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you guys uh, didn't watch, uh, we talked about this, you didn't watch the Disney Plus uh, Hamilton thing. Is this uh, a matter of no interest or not having Disney Plus? Or what's not having your, Disney Plus, that's not all. Having, Okay. Yeah, I don't have it. I, I'm sure I'll catch up with it eventually. Yeah, I would love too. to see it. I'm, I'm hearing, of course, everyone has an opinion as to whether it was done well in terms of the actual uh, cap, you know, the camera angles and the video capture at, and the editing. Uh, so I, of course, am, I'm curious to see that uh, and how I feel about that. Uh, I, I, um, uh, there was uh, someone who wrote a clickbait article somewhere. I, yeah, on Slate. Who was on Slate? Oh yeah, uh, you know, they're saying that you don't need to see the video uh, if uh, the the movie. Uh, shall we just call it a movie? I'm sorry. Uh, we you don't need to see the movie if you have if you already have the original cast recording because it's all in the score, the music and lyrics. And while I agree that. Um, the, I, I do agree that the great genius of the show is in the music and lyrics. I don't think that I would go so far as to say that you don't need the show because there are a lot of wonderful visuals in it and some really great creative staging and, and choreography, even if you, some people feel there's too much choreography, but uh, you know, so that's an opinion that some people have, but you can make your judgment on that. I certainly think you need to, it would be wonderful to see it. Uh, and also of course, to see the actor's facial expressions, uh, you know, uh, performance is not all, uh, in the voice. So I, I just thought that was a little bit of an annoying clickbait thing. And another thing I read uh, that I thought was interesting was people were asking each other, how do you turn on the uh, closed captioning? <laughs> yeah. Uh <-huh. laughs> because, because, you know, um, uh, the, the, the lyrics, the words do come at you very, very mm -hmm. fast in Hamilton. Yeah. And it can be a help if you choose to do that. I, what I probably would do is if I was experiencing it for the first time is I, I think I would try to find the time to watch it through twice, uh, once with and once without the, uh, the closed captioning. And I'm not sure which one I would do first. Uh, maybe <laughs> with. Maybe with? Uh, I don't know. Anyway, I, that, that's just the thought that I had. And if you have Disney+, Plus. Um, and it can see it, then you can see it multiple times without paying extra. So, uh, so that's certainly a, a, something you might want to consider. <laughs> uh, I watched it a few times as my uh, family are big fans of Hamilton and we watched it at all different times. Uh, and, oh my goodness, falling in love all over again with Philip, Philippa Sue. <laughs> I mean, just an amazing, amazing performance. But also, I, if I could put in a word for Renee Elise Goldsmith. Oh, yeah. No. I'm, uh, yeah. I mean, I know you're not. It's, it, it's yeah. hard to pick your favorites yeah. in, in this uh, thing. The uh, I, I think that, you know, Jonathan Groff uh, Spittle is uh, <laughs> a good topic of conversation. Mm -hmm. He 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 is the example of why social distancing is right. hard to do in a in a musical. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a lot of people were actually asking people who were new to him or uh, have not seen him on video singing said, well, perhaps that was a character choice. And other people are saying, uh, no, no, 
<laughs> no, that's not how that goes. So, uh, yeah. So Hamilton, uh, not only, you know, is it interesting that it's um, on Disney Plus and it's currently running on Broadway. I'm assuming that since it's currently running on Broadway and it's available on Disney Plus for $7 a month that the show will immediately post a closing notice because we know that <laughs> you can't run a Broadway show and record it and release it for a lower price because the uh, people will not buy tickets to it then. So expect that closing notice to come up on Monday from O&M or uh, the people Hamilton actually, Press reps. People actually were debating that. I'm like, really? I mean, under the circumstances, can't we just, why not just wait and see what happens? So... Uh, uh, I encourage people to uh, to uh, check out Hamilton on Disney Plus because it is again taking on a huge uh, social phenomenon uh, that a Broadway show is in the consciousness of the general public and being talked about. I mean, it's uh, it, it's all over everywhere on on television and all over the internet and everybody is uh talking about a broadway show and broadway's not even performing right now so i'm interested to see how this little experiment goes and certainly i i i was kidding before i don't think that this thing on disney plus is gonna is gonna impact hamilton at all in fact i think it's gonna help it grow so today is the 5th of july and as uh luck would have it there was a play called the 5th of july by lanford wilson peter i don't know anything about the 5th of july other than a young christopher reeve was in it yeah and unfortunately he played somebody who had lost his legs in the war mm. and i mean it's just so ironic that uh, the day would come when uh, he unfortunately would be uh having uh, similar disabilities so um but uh the 5th of july started at the the never to be forgotten circle rep um, at the Sheridan Square Playhouse um, right uh, near Christopher Street, the village to cigar stores right across the street. They, they use that space for a number of years. Um, Marshall Mason, the director, and Lanford Wilson really started a genuine franchise there, and that was a very exciting place to see plays in the 70s. And um, by the way, I purposely made sure that I saw the 5th of July on the 5th of July there. <laughs> um, you know, I love doing things like that. And um, it's a play about um, aging hippies, um, people who were countercultural during their uh, early years. And now it's a little harder to be that. And uh, they've all gone in different directions. And uh, one has a, a, a teenage child, um, wonderfully played by Amy Wright at the time. And uh, it really was an extraordinary experience to watch this play unfold, dealing with this issue. This was perhaps one of the first ones to deal with the fact of where did the hippies go? Uh, how did they change? How did they make uh, different decisions from the one they made before? How can they rationalize that? How can they, did they come to their senses or did they give up their ideals? And that's what the play is about. And it's a very effective one. And uh, there was a TV version too, no movie, but a TV version, um, which I've never seen. But um, it later did come to Broadway. And, you know, um, it, it, Swoozy Kurtz was in it too. And I still have vivid memories of, of, of her in it um, being, um, <laughs> her concern for uh, the Christopher Reeve character is that he somehow managed to get sex because you need sex in your life. And that was her um, big thing. And um, I can still see her on the stage of a theater that um, doesn't quite exist anymore. Um, it was made into whatever they're calling the uh, Ford Center, the Lyric, the uh, <laughs> Foxwoods, whatever. I never remember uh, too many changes. Anyway, um, there was a theater there once called the Apollo. And there were very few shows that played there. It came to life in, in the late 70s and was gone by the mid-80s, I would say. And, um, and that's where it moved to Broadway and was very effective there. Richard Thomas also uh, took the part for a while. And he, I did see him do it. And he was wonderful as well. So, yes, it's impossible for me um, to um, come to the 5th of July and not remember the 5th of July. I only saw Richard Thomas. Uh, uh -huh. But Jeff Daniels was still in it. Who? I'm sorry, now, who was the... Who was the original Ken off Broadway? William Hurt, I think. Oh, right, of course, yes. And then Chris Christopher Reeve opened it on Broadway, and then uh, Richard Thomas took over, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the show, the play has come up uh, in recent days on various chat boards, you know, given the title. Uh, and um, someone also made the point that aside from everything Peter said, which is absolutely true and I agree with, uh, that it is, as far as we all know, uh, can think of, one of the first, if not the first play that shows uh, a gay relationship and doesn't make it the focus of the play. It just happens to be there. Yeah. They're they're just people, (laughs) you know, two guys who happen to be gay and and partners. And that, that was a tremendous step forward. I, I think, uh, you know, in a way more so than when the focus is on it, as in, for example, boys in the band. Um, uh, and that of course, you Lanford Wilson would not have been able to, write a play like that if it hadn't been for boys you bet but uh but you know so i'm not putting down boys in the band in in any respect oh i know but but um but i yeah i think that was a great achievement on mr wilson's part and uh aside from the other really interesting themes in the play it's it, it really is i would like to see it again you know i would like to see it uh on stage again uh, other than just reading it. Well, you know, there should be at least a reading of it every 5th of July. I think that'd be good. Mm -hmm. That'd be fine. Mm -hmm. You know I mean? So um, let's hope that that becomes a thing in the next uh, 365 days from now. (laughs) Also, Kathy Kathy Bates replaced June Talley. Oh, uh, did she really? Yeah. I don't remember that. So uh, according to the IBDB, uh, of course I didn't see it, but... Uh, you know, it was quite interesting to see, uh, go back through, uh, replacements and see who has shown up in these, in these roles because, uh, you know, some huge people later in their careers can show up and eventually they will get the honor of being in a Peter Felicia trivia question. (laughs) (laughs) You want to go that right now? (laughs) Sure. Peter, so why don't you give us an answer to last week's trivia? Sure. Um, The question last week um, dealt with a certain song on an album that mentioned a lot of shows. And then I mentioned that there was a book that came out of this songwriter's lyrics, and some of the shows were very different there. So I was talking about Parade, the 1960 review by Jerry Herman. In the song A Jolly Theatrical Season, he had two critics making fun of the shows they'd recently seen. The recording has different lyrics from the ones cited in the book. And uh, by the way, for that matter, Robert Moss and Charles Nelson Riley once did an album of show songs in which they sang the song where yet other shows were mentioned. So uh, <laughs> that's why they call these things um, like Frankly Frank and Merrily We Roll Along topical reviews. Steve Bell was the first one to get it, followed by Paul Witte, who also guessed that the reason I chose Parade was because last Sunday when we recorded, the virus denied us a parade that otherwise always happens on the last mm. Sunday in June. Mm. Tony Janicki, Robert Lobiondo, Brigadude, and Mike Meany followed. Um, this week's question. An actor and director worked on a now famous musical for which the actor won a Tony, but the director wasn't even nominated. The two had worked together before on a film about a famous theatrical family. But for that movie, the director wasn't the director, but the writer. In the film, the actor got the chance to play a scene from a play that he'd later do in total in the Broadway role that he tackled right after his Tony win. (laughs) Who's the actor, the director, what's the musical, the film, and the play? I, I need string and uh, pins and things like that to kind of trace what just happened. <laughs> All right. If you have an answer for that, uh, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. Explain to me what Peter just asked. Uh, <laughs> it just had a, I just had a funny thought. Could you imagine if you asked a question like that of Siri? <laughs> 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 That's Siri, great. Siri's like, I have to consult with Alexa. So. <laughs> uh, did I say emails to trivia broader videos? Yes. Emails to trivia broader video and let us know what your thoughts are on that question. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So this uh this week's topic, we were gonna talk about um 
things that are not yet musicals. And uh, Peter and Michael and I discussed this over email, and I said, you know, what would that include? And I think we opened up the floor to everything. So things that are already on their way to being a Broadway musical that and things that have, to our knowledge, not been adapted yet uh, to be a Broadway musical. And so I thought, uh, Peter, why don't you get us started on this topic? Well, uh, I'm thinking of a Judy Garland movie that I think would make a wonderful musical. And uh, already mm. I can hear people groaning saying, oh, <laughs> what he's talking about is something like summer stock on stage. No, no, that's not what I mean. There's a wonderful movie from 1945 called The Clock. And The Clock has Judy Garland uh, as an actress, not singing a single note, not having the chance to sing a single song. And she's marvelous in the picture with Robert Walker, a young actor who died much too young. And uh, it's World War II, and he's about to go overseas, and he is in um, the old Penn Station. The movie also gives you a chance to see what the old Penn Station looked like. And um, they literally bump into each other, and um, she uh, winds up talking to him and him to her, and in 48 hours, they're married. And it's just such a wonderful story. I am telling you, the song cues leap out at you like crazy. What's also wonderful is um, they're in Central Park late at night and um, all the buses have stopped running. And oh, my God, how are they going to get where they're going? And a guy with a milk truck um, comes up and he gives them a ride. And then they go to a place to have a little bite to eat. And um, the milk guy gets into a fight. And they have to wind up delivering the milk that night. And I mean, I see a song there delivering milk, you know, mm-hmm. because doing it for one night would be a terrific thing. to. If you had to do it every day for the rest of your life, I mean, you know, you'd kill yourself. But the point is, for one night, it's a goof. It's fun. You know, it's an experience, you know. And again, there's a, a production number there. Um, they get married in City Hall, which, of course, is not. Um, the average person, especially in 1945, the average woman's uh, ideal of getting married. When they think of getting married, they certainly don't think of a, a quick thing in City Hall where a woman washing the floor turns out to be um, the maid of honor. Um, and she says, I didn't even have flowers. Well, once again, um, you know, a song cue if there ever was one. Well, um, by the end, he has to leave. He has to go overseas and fight. And she says to him, you're coming back. Look at what's happened to you here right now. This is an an omen that you are coming back because something wonderful happened to you. And you can, and she goes away and she walks away as the music swells. And she's so proud that she did this for this guy who she really has fallen in love with. So it's a terrific, terrific movie. And again, I will admit that I don't know if such a, um, such a property could be commercially successful today. Because you would need music that sounded like the 40s. I guess you could update it to be uh, somebody going overseas now, uh, but or at least in recent wars, which unfortunately we've had. So, but, um, but nevertheless, the property itself, I'm telling you, watch the movie and see if they, uh, if you don't see a song every other second. <laughs> Michael, what are some of your uh, thoughts on things that have not yet been musicalized? Well, another movie that I think would make a wonderful traditional musical, but almost certainly would not be successful today is Life with Father, which Mm -hmm. I mentioned recently still holds the record as the longest running non-musical in Broadway history. And uh, I just think that uh, the characters are so wonderful and this, this, uh, really, really rich period depiction of this family uh, in the late 1800s living on Madison Avenue in New York and their uh, their lifestyle and the fact that the, uh, the the basis of the comedy is that the father is very blustery and he comes across as an autocrat, but uh, basically he's, you know, deep down he's a pussycat and we understand that it's actually the mother who really pulls, <laughs> you know, uh, pulls all the strings in the family, but she does it in a very subtle way uh, without even making him realize it so much. And they have, um, uh, was it four or five sons, all of whom are redheads. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's, it's a very, as I said before, it's a very, very gentle 
kind of humor that I don't think is popular anymore, which is one reason why I think that the, the play right. uh, might not be, uh, really might not uh, be successful if it were revived now, unless, you know, of course it could be done by, uh, in a limited run by one of the institutional theaters by Lincoln center or, or uh, Manhattan theater club or someone like that. But with music, uh, you know, it might be more palatable. Um, although even that, I think that kind of, it would really need, in my view, it would have to have a very, very uh, traditional, wonderful old time, score and i was trying to think of who uh today could probably manage it and uh, the first people who leapt to mind were aaron's and flaherty and yeah, me too i knew you were gonna yeah. Do yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so um i don't know if uh you know i would advise them to try it because i think that the odds would be against success but it would be intriguing and uh it there were great great roles uh for lots of people i uh Actually, Gerard Alessandrine and I had spoken a while back about a revival of the play. Uh, if it were done, who who would be good in it? And and he suggested Alec Baldwin as the father. Mm-hmm. Which uh, you know, at first I said what, and then I thought, yeah, you know, you're right. Yeah, and lots of possibilities for the the mother Vinny. Her, they call her Vinny. Her name is Lavinia, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful play by. Lindsay and Krauss and could it could have been a, a great mm-hmm. musical. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a little surprised that it wasn't attempted at some point in the past, like maybe in the sixties or the late fifties or, but it ran so long. Uh, the, <laughs> it, it was, I think it was 47 to 55. Uh, so um, they no, 39 to 47 rings a bell with me. Oh, I'm sorry. The movie. I'm sorry. Oh, I see. I see. No, no, no. I was. Yeah. My, thank you. You're right. Um, uh, yeah. So they, they could have maybe done it back then, but they didn't. And perhaps that ship has sailed. But it does strike me that in terms of quality for an old fashioned type musical, it would have been a, a wonderful basis for that. Well, um, it may be too late for a musical version of Casablanca, too, but I think it would be very good. Now, this was announced. uh, If you have an old LP of Oliver, you will see that on the back cover, there's simply a bio of David Merrick, and it talks about his upcoming shows, including a musical version of Fanny Bryce called My Man. That's what it says there. But also, uh, he mentions a musical version of Casablanca that Deacon Schwartz were working on. And... um, yeah, I, they didn't get very far, as I understand it. As I understand, they wrote two songs and then said, no, the hell with it. I'll never forget being at an ASCAP workshop where somebody came up and wanted to do Casablanca, and Marvin Hamlish was on the panel and said, you know what the problem is? What are you going to do when it comes to as time goes by? Are you going to play as time goes by? Uh, when he says, play it, Sam. Um, and if you have your own song there, <laughs> maybe he'll say, no, not that song. I want to hear as time goes by. Anyway, <laughs> but um, I, it, again, another one where song cues just leap at you. And at the end where uh, Rick gallantly gives up Ilsa uh, to go with her husband, Victor, um, he says to her, we'll always have Paris, um, talking about the memories they had when they were in love and there were no complications, at least romantically. There were complications politically, but not romantically. And I've always thought, we'll always have Paris is a very nice song just before she leaves on the plane. So um, so I don't know if anybody would do it or should do it or could do it, but um, what I will say is that I certainly see a number of song cues whenever I watch Casablanca. Um, which I have seen <laughs> over 50 times. Once, you know, one time I was in Montreal, which after all is a French-speaking um, place. And as I was walking back to my hotel, uh, I said, gee, wouldn't it be wonderful if Casablanca were on now in French? And it was. And it was. <laughs> it was great. You know, since I know it inside out, it was terrific watching it in French. Um, I've also seen it in Spanish, though, in the comforts of my apartment on a local TV station. But um, it is a favorite, and I think it would make a wonderful musical. Another possible issue with Casablanca, and I share your admiration for I think it's one of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, but another possible issue is the character of Rick. He would be a challenge. He might be a challenge to musicalize because he's, um, what word would you use? He's 
is a somewhat a taciturn, uh, yeah, a, a strong, silent sure. type. He he's sure. not effusive. Uh, you know, he's he's very controlled. Um, so, but uh, I'm not saying it can't be done. It's just no. Be- another factor too. Don't forget there was that long flashback sequence. And oh yes, there he's very much alive. So mm. uh, under those circumstances, I think that would be uh, all right. Another one I've always wanted to see done is um, It Should Happen to You, a musical from the 50s. Uh, Judy Holliday was in it. Yes. Jack Lemmon, just starting out. Um, and this is about a woman named Gladys Glover. And Gladys is an actress and not doing terribly well. And she thinks she might do better if she promotes herself simply by buying signs around town that say Gladys Glover. Nothing more than that. Just Gladys Glover. Anyway, uh, Jack Lemmon thinks this is the stupidest thing. And yet he's with her in a department store where she's charging something. He said, what's your name? Gladys Glover. Gladys Glover? You're Gladys Glover? Everybody in the store goes, <laughs> I mean, don't you hear? It's Gladys Glover. <laughs> I mean, I do. You know what I mean? Um, and it really is quite a wonderful picture. And it does deal a lot with the fact that um, people need to be recognized. And I think that's a very worthwhile message. So um, I, I, I've always thought that would be wonderful. And, of course, it would have been wonderful to have Judy Holiday do it uh, because in the one music, well, she did two musicals, but we only, most of us only know her from one, Bells Are Ringing. She certainly was spectacular and won the Tony that year over Julie Andrews um, in, in a year where My Fair Lady was doing awfully well at the Tonys, needless mm. to say. So that's, uh, that's pretty impressive. But anyway, I've always thought that would make a good one, too. Um, have you guys ever heard of um, a musicalization of When Harry Met Sally? Um, no, but I, but I, uh, <laughs> but I certainly see the value in it. I would really like one, and then I was uh, after I thought about it for a bit, I was like, did somebody attempt it? Uh, maybe uh, a workshop or a reading a number of years ago, and then I I searched and I couldn't really find anything about it. But I'd love to. I think it's a great love story, and I think that it lends itself to a stage show and I agree uh, a lot of, a lot of good musical cues and I I just adore the movie and it's based on a movie which doesn't hurt these days either another movie that has been done but done terribly uh is Miracle on 34th Street mm. and I mean you watch that picture and again the song cues leap out at you I mean it's just so wonderful um if I were to do this I would certainly retain 3 songs from Meredith Wilson's version called Here's Love in uh, 1963. Although now if you rent this show from MTI, it's called Miracle on 34th Street, the musical, mm. but it's the same show. But the opening song called The Big Cologne, don't, no, don't get me started. The Big Cologne <laughs> Balloons, the title song, Here's Love. Uh, and that man over there is Santa Claus, a three terrific songs. After that, it's um, the songs are so unmelodious, I don't even know how the cast learned them. Um, and they're irrelevant songs, too. So it really mm-hmm. is, um, I mean, I, I go into great detail in this in my book about the 63-64 season, the Great Parade book. But nevertheless, uh, there is a musical waiting to happen in Miracle on 34th Street, and it would really be quite wonderful if somebody would do it. Another mm-hmm. movie that I believe I read quite some time ago that there was some plans to musicalize it and then uh, and then it didn't happen and uh, as far as i know and nothing uh, was heard for years and then just recently uh before the, the pandemic but not that long ago i read again uh that there were plans afoot although i don't know any details and that's moonstruck Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember, yeah. Mm-hmm. Does right. anybody have any more info? No, no, but I remember when it was uh, very much bandied about it. It was always announced as next season, you know, and yeah. really, that's very true. Yeah, good for you. Uh, um, uh, I was just trying to think of movies off the top of my head, and there are, there are still so many, uh, of course, uh, that, that could be good if they were well done. Um, Forrest Gump. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, is this tremendously obvious choice. Uh, I don't think there's a musical of this and a fair to remember. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, not that I know of. Um, yeah, and God knows how many people have these musicals in their basement, you know, um, <laughs> they were writing. I mean, we, we all have these that um, would indeed be wonderful if it, uh, but, um, but I, I don't know of one of either a fair to remember or for that matter. Um, 
is it love affair that's based on what's the update of it yeah there's an update what's it called i think that well i think the previous and the and the then the sequel the the remake were both called love affair isn't were they right? really um that doesn't sound right to me but i'm not saying no um but uh to be and not to be um, which became a semi-musical, at least uh, when Mel Brooks took it. Uh, but um, this is about um, a guy who plays Hamlet. And, um, well, his wife is being courted by this young soldier. And what happens is the soldier comes to see the play every night. And when it's <laughs> when he hears to be and not to be, he knows that uh, Hamlet's going to be on stage for a while. And so he leaves. And this really rankles the actor who just goes crazy about uh, this guy always walking out during his big moment. And it's so funny, too, because the uh, the soldier is so naive. And, you know, you would think after a while he'd know exactly when it would happen. But you know, it doesn't, he doesn't um, anticipate it. He, he doesn't know that he's supposed to leave until he actually hears the word to be and not to be be um an american president what a wonderful oh, movie by aaron yeah. sorkin i'm telling you when i saw an american president all i could think of is this is what mr president should have been um because here's a guy who uh is widowed and that's significant he's not divorced he lost his wife he's had a tragedy and he's just now thinking of getting involved with someone else and he's very attracted to uh, somebody who is not necessarily on his side and has to juggle that. So uh, Michael Douglas and Annette Bening are wonderful in the movie, but another one with song cues leap out at you like crazy. I hope we're inspiring people to get uh, to, <laughs> to write these things. Wouldn't it be wonderful if this really led to um, mm. somebody uh, writing a, a, a musical that uh, lasts now and forever? I think that would really be quite wonderful. One of the things, one of the things that, uh, uh, is an impediment to writing a musical is the rights tied up with these things. Oh, sure. Uh, totally. Oh, ain't it the it, truth. It's it, totally insane. Once it becomes a movie, the movie studio just never wants to be reasonable unless you're, unless you're a Scott Rudin and well, you can yeah, come in course. there and yeah. muscle yeah, that. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I know this happened a long, long time ago, but nevertheless, um, I always say, you know, who would have expected that Charles Schultz would say to this nobody, Clark Gessner, yeah, go ahead and utilize <laughs> Charlie Brown. I mean, that was such a hot property in those days. Everybody knew that Peanuts comic strip, and yet this nobody um, wound up getting the rights. And Richard Seff, who was his agent, told me that he made so much money from that show that he used to be embarrassed when Richard Seff called up and said, listen, I got another check for 10000 for you. Oh, please, don't, I'm, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm embarrassed by it, you know. So <laughs> he's a very um, meek and mild guy. And um, so as a result, um, it, it's really too bad. But, um, but nevertheless, it is true that that was 1967 or earlier, obviously, and it's much harder now to do anything like this. So. Well, although uh, to that point, if I understand correctly, I mean, as I think we all know, in recent year, fairly recent years, some studios have um, have taken another view and have developed uh what do they call them? Uh, developmental or production arms specifically to uh, identify some of their films and try to get people to make musicals of them. Uh, so, uh, and I think we've seen several examples of that. So if you, I mean, if you just happen to get an idea of a movie to, uh, to adapt as a musical, and then you go to the studio, you might indeed find it extremely difficult and, unaffordable but if if they uh come to mm. you if if they have one of these production arms and they're and they're f looking for someone or uh, teams to adapt musicals then you might be uh that might be uh, the way that it would happen uh love affair by the way i looked up 1939 uh Irene yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and charles boyer and then 1994 um, I, I thought I remembered this, Warren Beatty and Annette Benning. 
Uh, Tony Janicki had just uh, put that in the chat a couple of minutes ago about mm. the 1939 fair, uh, mm. film. So, uh, Tony, we want to give props there. Rob Johnston, also a listener, uh, was mentioning Sleep, Sleepless in Seattle, which I think is also a great idea. And, that, but I feel like happened. it has been done. That has yeah. happened. There was a production in London. Um, I know it didn't go over so well. The, the, it, it was being written by um, somebody, and then um, I don't know if he wasn't working fast enough or what, but it, it was taken away from him. And a, a second team or songwriter, I'm not sure which, did wind up doing it, and uh, it did place. I'm not saying it played the West End in London. It may have, but, um, but it's definitely was done in England, let's say that. And, um, and then uh, nothing has been heard from it since, which um, is too bad. Marty Bell, um, who was a Broadway producer for a long mm. time, wanted to do a musical of a letter for three wives and um, a letter to three wives, um, a movie from the forties that Joe Mankiewicz did. Um, I think it was the picture he did just before all about Eve, but anyway, um, this is about um, uh, three women who go on um, a day, a carefree day on a boat. And, uh, but they find out just before they go that um, somebody they know uh, has written them and says, "Uh, I'm running off with your husband. And um, and now that they're marooned out on the boat, and this is long before cell phones, um, there it's just such a nerve-wracking thing, wondering if they're still married. And there were flashbacks about how they fell in love, and you know, um, it all went wrong, but where? Um, so uh, I know that at the time, and it's so sad to even mention this. I know he wanted Mary, Marin Mazzi to do it, and uh, he wanted Donna Murphy mm. to do it, and Sherry Renee Scott. I remember him telling me that. Um, and, um, boy, um, with those three ladies over the title, you really have quite a thing. Um, I know we asked Aaron's and Flaherty to do it and I know that they weren't interested, which is too bad, but, um, you know, we all have projects that speak to us and projects that don't. So, um, which we're proving right now. I mean, these are the ones that speak to us. A Stockard Channing TV movie called The Girl Most Likely was being musicalized by, uh, I think Zena Goldrich, um, I think, um, uh, um, who, uh, I think she was um, the composer of record there, and uh, Marcy Heisler, her longtime uh, lyricist. I think they were doing it, and I think the book was by Dennis Markell and Douglas Bernstein. Um, and then, I don't know how it fell apart, but this was a TV movie from, I think, the 70s. And it was one of the things that really established Stockard Channing um, as a, a name actress, um, not as much as Grease, God knows, but nevertheless, um, it did. Um, she played a very, very unattractive, frumpy, ugly girl. Uh, and men walk all over her and humiliate her well. Um, then she gets into a terrible accident and they have to completely restructure her face. And now she's beautiful, beautiful. And she's going to get revenge on all those guys who made fun of her when she wasn't. So it's a, it's a wonderful black comedy. Gee, I'm glad I mentioned it. I think I'm going to watch it tonight. Um, so um, <clears throat> I think that would be a good one too. Speaking of black comedies, you know what I thought might be a really good one is something for everyone. Oh yeah. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. This yeah. is the flop. Um, Hal Prince movie he directed the one of the two films he ever directed uh starring Angela Lansbury and Michael York and it play uh Michael York plays this fellow who has no money and he comes across this uh formerly very rich family that owns a castle in Bavaria the the, the castle they actually use for the the setting is Neuschwanstein, the, the famous castle that's in uh, the, the Mad King Ludwig and is in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and many other movies. Um, and and uh, on many jigsaw puzzles, too. Okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's supposed to be that that family has come on very hard times, but they do still own the castle. So he, uh, this fellow played by Michael York, he's um, quite ruthless and and uh, a user and uh, an opportunist and a, uh, I guess you could say a gigolo, but but you know very subtly, of course, not in a, not in an obvious way. And so he worms his way into the uh, into the family uh, person by person. I, I think he at one point or another sleeps with both the daughter and the son and the mm-hmm. mother. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and uh, I won't tell you wh- how it turns out. But uh, that would m- might make a really excellent 
dark comic musical would have been wonderful property for Candor and Ebb. Um, mm. But uh, there were probably other people who would do a good job with it nowadays. And, uh, and that, that fulfills the criteria of uh, don't adapt something that's already a tremendous hit. Um, you know, as as a non musical, I have, there are many exceptions to that, of course, as well. But that is one thing that some people say: if it's perfect as is, you don't necessarily need to do it. But if there's something there and you really can add to it with music, uh, that is something you might look at and say, "Hey, let's do a musical of this and see how that works." Paul Witte uh, dropped into the chat here that there's a new production of Sleepless that was announced for the spring in London with oh, yeah? a uh, book by Michael Bernard, uh, Burdett, a score by Robert Scott and Brendan Cull, and directed by Morgan Young, all not connected to the 2013 production. So, uh, oh, really? We'll have to uh-huh. see if that uh, comes to fruition uh, post uh, West End reopening. Well, I know we have we already have in the good old summertime, and we already obviously have "She Loves Me." But um, I was thinking of a, a musical, updated musical version of "You Got Mail." Right. Yeah. But then I was thinking also that would be a little challenging uh, to to write one that kept up with uh, technology <laughs> in terms of state of the art, and all, Ain't that you know, true? it's yeah. more and more difficult, I suppose, something. to keep your identity secret. Uh, online uh you know I, I imagine there are people who still do it but it's it's just not the same as it used to be no that's a very good point mm-hmm. um when Catherine ann porter wrote ship of fools way back in the 60s and it became a movie too people referred to it as uh, grand hotel on the water hmm. well grand hotel made a terrific musical so maybe ship of fools would too as you get these various characters on a ship um who see each other every day and have to interact with each other or choose not to but uh but it's uh, it's a wonderful wonderful movie and um a terrific book as well so i think that would be uh, very uh, worthwhile as well as the purple rose of cairo um a movie about a woman who is just crazy about the movies and she goes to see ones that she likes over and over and over again to the point of which the people in the movie notice her and they come out of the movie and say, hey, you were here yesterday. Hey, you come every day. <laughs> and, of course, it would be a musical movie, and um, and you would uh, see them. Uh, uh, the, the ending is kind of heartbreaking, and um, that doesn't mean you have to continue with it. I mean, after all, we've heard so many times that when Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote uh, the musical version of Lilium called Carousel, that um, they ended on a more hopeful note than um, Frank Molnar did with his original play. So maybe a nicer way could be found of ending um, uh, this property as well. And, you know, I mean, in that sense, it, it's, it's almost like an ending like the drowsy chaperone where uh, the guy gets uh, carried away, so to speak. Um, uh, and um, that, that might be a, a very good one. You know, I wanted to mention there are several plays that have been that have been adapted as operas, uh, I guess, because it was thought that maybe they were too serious, quote unquote, to be musicals. But with the operatic form, they, it was thought that they would work better. And uh, in most in well, in some cases, yes, in some cases, no, uh, there's a there are operas of the of you from the bridge. Uh, the Crucible, that's from the 50s or 60s, I think. Um, Streetcar Named Desire, uh, the Andre Previn opera mm-hmm. of Mice and Men. That's another one from decades ago. And The Turn of the Screw, Benjamin Britten. And then far more recently, uh, there was an opera of Doubt. Uh, I, I don't know if you all are aware of that. Uh, and then, believe it or not, I just looked this up, but Next month at the Santa Fe Opera was to have been the world premiere of a new opera of M. Butterfly. Oh, yeah. I did see mm. that. Yeah. yeah. With uh, music by a fellow named Wang, Ro, Wang Ruo, H-U-A-N-G-R-U-O, and libretto by David Henry Wang. So um, that is something that who maybe we'll see that someday. And then there's a, an opera of Angels in America. A uh, recent mm, opera of Angels yeah, in America. Yeah. So it's interesting to look at the operas that have been written on plays in 
and think about what um, in future what plays might be used as basis of opera libretti rather than book musicals. Well, Stephen Sondheim loves to tell the story of when right. he was adapting Sunset Boulevard and talked to Billy Wilder who said, no, it's got to be an opera because she's a fallen queen. And he said, you stopped working on it right away. Yeah. That was it. Never, never understood or agreed with that, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. But nevertheless, you know, uh, what can I say? Yeah, that's <laughs> what he said. <laughs> Steve Bell, uh, Steve Bell chimed in that seance on a wet afternoon. It was an opera by Stephen Schwartz. Yes. That's right. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Um, I loved it. I just loved it. Is that right? You saw I it, did. huh? I did. Uh-huh. I did not get good reviews. I loved it. Back in the 60s, there was a lot of talk about Ethel Merman and Mary Martin being in a musical version of Arsenic and Old Lace mm. uh, as the two uh, Brewster sisters. And um, I guess they would have had to do the same thing over the title they did when Ethel Merman and Jimmy Durante uh, were co-starred, where they had to crisscross the names. Um, I guess that's what would have to happen uh, when Ethel Merman and Mary Martin were playing together. But it just turned out to be a pipe dream. Um, and that's really too bad that that was the way it went because it would have been great fun to see those two ladies perform together. I don't know if they get along backstage, but it'd be fun to see them uh, <laughs> together. I, I don't know. I, did they get along? Did they not? Um, so, I haven't heard uh, anything either way. Yeah, okay. Uh, Mary, wait, wait, which two people? Mary Martin and Ethel Merman. Oh, did they get along? Is Was that what you said? Yeah, did they? Oh, I you believe know? they were extremely good friends. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Okay, fine. Yeah, yeah, they worked mm-hmm. together. You know, they did that. Yes. That TV show. And they, yeah, no, but apparently from all I've read, they, yes. Um, how about uh, Same Time Next Year as a good two person musical? That's yeah. been musicalized. Oh, okay. There you go. I, I don't know if anything has ever really happened with it, but I, I, I definitely have a demo here of it. Um, and uh, so uh, I don't remember who, I think it was Stan Daniels, the guy who did um, So Long 174th Street. Um, so uh, I'm pretty sure he was the one who did it. Wow. Uh, but then I I don't know if it was ever produced, but it did happen. It certainly happened. Uh, Tony Janicki adds in the uh, the Preston Sturgis film Unfaithfully Yours, which starred Rex Harrison, Linda mm. Darnell, Ruth, uh, Rudy Villi, and... Valley. And that, Valley. Valley. Excuse <laughs> yeah, me. I'm um, it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I was going to mention Rudy Valley in a trivia question, but anyway, um, <laughs> so I guess I won't now. Tony um, has come to answering trivia questions before you ask them. That's right. <laughs> That's uh, how good he is th- at this. The, th- the thing is, um, so many of those Preston Sturgis movies would be wonderful. If you watch Sullivan's Travels, I'm telling telling you that first speech that the guy gives is actually an AABA song. I mean, it's really something. So um, yeah, they'd really be good. And um, of course there was one of Hail the Conquering Hero, simply called the Conquering Hero, which um, Moose Charlotte um, did the uh, music, the guy from Peter Pan and Whoop Up, uh, if you um, know Whoop Up. Um, but anyway, um, the bottom line of this has to do with the fact that it wasn't a success. Um, it was a big, f- this is the one where famously, you've heard this um, line a million times that Larry Gelbart, the book writer said, if Hitler is still alive, I hope he's out of town with a musical. <laughs> so, um, so that's exactly where that came from. But, I'm telling you, the Preston Sturgis movies really do lend themselves to musicalization. Hmm. All right. So uh, any others that we want to throw in before we uh, have to run? Well, uh, for me, go ahead. Uh, just a couple of the, the, uh, that I'll throw out. Les Liaisons Dangereuses. Is there something uh, that? That would be something. Yeah. Um, Nicholas Nickleby, uh, they'd obviously have to uh-huh. condense it, but we, uh, we have seen Dickens uh, we sure serve, have. service. Excellent basis for musical. Um, Noises Off might be fun, but uh, tricky because, you know, th- th- there's so much farce and comedy in it. But I think if, if a genius did it, that might be, that might be something. And um, how about Warhorse? Huh. Wow. <laughs> yeah, these these are very adventurous um, ideas, and I, I, I wish we were in a climate where, indeed, people would say, yeah, that's, uh, that's yeah. what we're doing. Um, I, I guess, you know, um, all these would have been so wonderful for Sondheim in his prime, all these difficult ones, um, because I really have faith that he would have done them so well. 
I agree. Um, and how about the place of August Wilson? I was thinking. I was, was just thinking of that too. Well, yeah, but you know, they're they're so dense, um, and the language is so rich. Uh, I, I think it could be done, but again, it would it would need a genius. Um, we'll have to think about who might be able to do the and. Uh, uh, well, uh, maybe the most obvious choice is to turn Ma Rainey's Black Bottom oh, sure. into yeah. a full-fledged musical, right. yeah. you know? Because uh, as it is, there's just a little music in it, right? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. All right. So those are uh, certainly a great list of things to think of if you're an aspiring uh uh, musical theater writer out there, get going on these. <laughs> the time is ticking uh, because, uh, you know. It always does. <laughs> it always does. It's always moving, except for in that last five years thing, it goes kind of backwards and forwards. <laughs> so, uh, oh, you, one thing we didn't mention, um, we had news that Dustin Hoffman's coming back to Broadway in a Scott Rudin production of Our Town. Interesting, Bart Scherter to direct. Uh, kind of an odd announcement <laughs> for these days, but on several uh, on several levels. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so kind of crazy. Uh, Tony Janicki reminds us that Ma Rainey's Black Bottom actually got a cash recording. So yeah, oh. right. Yeah, I own it. In fact, yeah, the whole play. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So. Um, Let's wrap up here. I want to remind our listener that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. This is a subscribe link. That way, each and every day, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it can be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Never be cross, try to be boss, they wouldn't do. For nobody else gave me a deal. Whether you're boss, I love you still. Baby, it had to be you, wonderful you, had to be you.